Okay, I'm going to pray. <laughs> All right, thank you, dear Lord, for um, giving us a day where we can come and worship you and share with one another and open the scriptures and search them and find out what you've told us. May we believe what you've said and may what you've said change our lives as we trust and believe and obey in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay. This is a review slide. We've covered this one. <clears throat> but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob this is in Thessalonica, and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. So we covered this slide, so I won't spend much time on it, but as Dr. Schnabel says, bad characters from the rabble in the Agora, which was the marketplace. So people are hanging around, see what's going to happen. And so they thought, hey, let's have a riot. That'd be fun. Yeah, well, people are hanging around in Minneapolis now waiting to see if they're going to have one. Who knows? But I have a few slides that I probably haven't shown you. I don't remember. Let me read the... This is about that particular thing. <coughs> and so you'd have a kind of gathering place, like an agora. So... I have a, it says here, the, the phrase used from the marketplace can refer to the crowd that frequented uh, the marketplace and by extension the rabble. So they're there, they're hanging out, and that's a place of public gatherings, trials, and shopping, socializing, whatever's going to happen. In this case, a riot happened. So... That's what that was. So this is the sort of place where the rabble rousers would have been. This is an, old, an excavation in Thessalonica. And they'd hang out. At least one of these places was probably a marketplace. And so they started creating havoc. Now let's go to verses 6 and 7. When they did not find them, they dragged, they, they were looking for Paul, couldn't find him in his cohorts. They dragged Jason and some brothers before the city officials shouting, these people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world have come here also, whom Jason has entertained as guests. Now, I have that word entertained in green. So first of all, they accuse the gospel preachers of being troublemakers. And not only are they troublemakers, they do that wherever they go. Well, how did they stir up trouble? By preaching Christ. And so I guess it's not shocking that preaching Christ would create uh, a negative reaction in the world, marketplaces of the world. 
But you know what's shocking today, because, and I'm basing this on thousands of emails over the last 20 years since we, or more that I've had email, 20, like 24 years since I've had email. This happens in churches. Now, the people that cause a tumult and throw people out are the leaders of churches. And the troublemakers are Christians who think the Bible ought to be believed and taught in the church. Isn't that ironic? It's an unbelievable irony, but that's exactly right. How many people I've talked to, I have no way to count. It's gone on for too many decades, um, at least since the late 90s. It told me that they've asked the elders or the pastors to preach Christ. Don't bring in false teachers. Don't bring in mind over matter doctrines or uh, positive thinking doctrines or inner healing doctrines or lately now it's Enneagram, whatever it is. Don't bring pagan stuff into church. Preach the Bible and preach Christ. And the answer is, you're a troublemaker and you better just go find a different church. And if you don't, we'll just kick you out. So I'm going to be kicked out of the church, they say, for asking church, the, the elders to preach the gospel and to teach the word of God. Well, you're a troublemaker. You're not listening to the spirit. Whatever it is, they say. And so this goes on and on. I think it's pretty ironic. I'm not shocked that the Romans and Jews that have rejected the gospel would do this. But the church? But see, that's another topic that I've been exploring. And that is, we live in an era where we have something called Christendom. And Christendom is sort of a culture that's quasi-Christian, and there are certain expectations. And it creates sort of a power structure that also rejects the gospel. So Christians are defined by people. Mike, in the back. Oh, right behind you. Oh, you got it, and then the next one. I just had a comment on... uh there you haven't read these people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world. That, to me, that's that's amazing. I mean, now in our day, now if something happens, it goes viral, and everybody know what you know. We got so many communications devices, but how did things go viral back in that in that era? That's a good point. Uh, actually, it's, it's a very good point. And the world there, they're thinking of the Roman Empire mostly. And if you remember the end of Ephesians, there was another one back there. Oh, that's okay. Uh, I was talking about how this uh, Tychicus was sent from Rome to Ephesus. And it was a very recent thing that a letter could be brought directly by one person to another part of the Roman Empire rather than by sort of relay. He'd go here and then it'd get relayed and then relayed. Whereas Tychicus could bring it all the way from Rome to Ephesus. And so through Pax Romana, it's called, um, at that particular time in history, there was actually pretty amazing, for the time, ability to communicate. 
and they'd hear about things. Word would get to Rome. It took longer than it does now. Now it's instant. And it now it literally covers the world. And here, they're talking about the Roman Empire primarily. Uh, but that's in God's providence that the first advent and the presence of the apostles happened at a time when the Christian gospel could actually influence nearly every person. They had a common language, the Greek language. They had very sophisticated abilities for the time compared to what most of, of, of the history of the world. Very interesting, good question. But now everything goes everywhere. And so the need to be Bereans, now that's, I don't know if we'll get to that this week or next, but we're going to really drill down on what, was, what happened in Berea compared to Thessalonica. And there's a real challenge there. To be people who are willing to be convinced by the truth, if it can be known. What if we could know the truth? What if we could know what God actually said once for all? What if the gospel's true? What if Jesus Christ really is the promised Messiah? What if he really is the creator of the universe? As it says in John 1 and Hebrews 1. What if these things are true? Well, wouldn't you want to know? What, what is it about the human heart in, because of the fall that gets angry when the truth is spoken? Well, it's a failure to welcome a love for the truth, according to Thessalonians. Because they did not welcome decomai, I'm going to talk about that word today, the love of the truth, so as to be saved, God sent them a deluding influence that they'd believe the lie. I, don't, I can't give you the exact chapter and verse, but I think we've talked about it many times. You can look it up easily. So that's what's really at issue. So they stirred up trouble. They're troublemakers. Stirred up trouble uh, is an interesting word. And um, it probably meant a revolt. The same word is used in Acts 21, 38, where it says, then you are not the Egyptian who before these days raised a revolt and let out into the wilderness the 4,000 men of the assassins. They said that to Paul in Acts 21, 38. So it meant to create a revolt or to create trouble. So now the mob action wasn't focused on the preachers. This is my statement. But the local citizens who welcomed them. They claimed that the troublemakers, Paul and Silas, were known around the Roman Empire as agitators. So those who hosted them should be punished to stop this sort of thing. And when we welcome gospel preachers, we end up hated by our peers. It's true. Ironically, in our day, Churches who welcome gospel preachers are hated by other so-called Christians. It's just as true. It, it, why should Christians hate Christians who preach the gospel? Because they're not Christian. Because they're not Christian. Yes, go ahead, Eric. 
Yeah, I was just up in St. Cloud yesterday, and I talked to some people from Wilmer. Uh, Wilmer has a huge Muslim population, and uh, I talked to some people who are Christians who are going and, you know, preaching Christ to the Muslims, and these people are being persecuted and hated by the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Episcopal churches. All of these churches want to do this interfaith dialogue that says we're worshiping the same God. And these people that I talk to, some of them are, you know, they're biblical Christians. They're trying to be faithful Christians, and they're getting doxxed and persecuted, and they're just hated by and, and abused, abused, <laughs> hated by these, uh, these mainline denominations who have this, they have this interfaith dialogue group that the, actually the imam in, uh, organizes it. They're, they're, it's all propaganda, but the mainline denominations, they've gone totally apostate. Yeah, and so they want to they want to say all the religions are saying the same thing. Exactly. And the ones okay. that are the ones that are standing up for the gospel are just getting hammered. Okay. Just we were hammered. having a thank you. We were having a discussion before you all got here um, about the three groups in the world. Okay? Because now there's all this talk about who hates whom or who hates who. How's that grammatically? I always thought the object was whom, the subject was who. But when you say it, you say who's who. I don't know. There's a, there's a dilemma to figure out. But let me, let me tell you something the Bible says. All right, pay attention. Here's what the Bible says. Give no offense to Jew, nor Greek, nor the church of God. Now, this means needless offense. Is the gospel offense? Of course. Jews and Greeks. Now, Greeks at that time was a metonymy, meaning everybody who wasn't Jewish. And then Paul adds another group, the Church of God, which is the one new man comprised of Jews, converted Jews and Greeks. Okay? In our day, it's the same three groups. Three groups. Jews, Greeks, Church of God. The Church of God is not the United Methodist Church with their rainbow flag. Okay. Or whatever. That's another version of the Greeks. And if there is somebody in there who's part of the Church of God, they're going to be not welcome and they're going to have to find somewhere else. But not always. Every once in a while you run into a United Methodist Church where the pastor preaches the gospel. But the denominational affiliation doesn't tell us what's Christian and what's not. Yes, brother. Why do Christians fight against Christians has been one of the questions I have really asked myself too. And then I have come to understand within me is like every Christian tries to like understand the scripture or or go along with the scripture the way they want it to be. It's like telling somebody what they they really want to hear. Yeah, okay. I think I got that. Why do Christians, you know, kind of get in groups by saying we have the right reading of Scripture? Is that correct? Is that what you're saying? But you're saying it's probably because we just want to hear what we want to hear. Okay, so we decide. Uh, yeah, okay, I think I understand. Um, this is another one. So somebody here is a grammar expert can tell me if I got it right. 
one word is called parochialism. But let me use what something I've said in the past. It's saying this. We are right because we are us. Or, I think grammatically, isn't it correct to say we are right because we are we? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I said it wrong. All right, I'm going to correct myself from now on. We are right because we are we. Now, in logic, we call that being self-referentially incoherent. <laughs> Uh, well, why why we use a big phrase like that? Well, because that's really what it is. You haven't done one thing to find out what's really true by just saying we're right because of who we are. You haven't actually searched the scriptures like the Bereans to see if these things are true. What's right is what God said in his word. Could be that some of the things we believe we need to learn the way of the Lord more perfectly. Okay? Or be corrected totally. I don't know. We need to search the scriptures. We're only right if what we believe is what God said in his word. We're not right just because of who we are. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay, good. And then some, some part of me also believe it might be the fulfillment of the scripture when the Bible says nations will fight against nations, brothers is going to be fighting against sisters. So I think that prophecy is not only to the worldly people, it's also to the church. Okay, I think it says that would apply, if I heard that correctly. Um, in the last days, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I think that's true. So we really do need to be Bereans. And we were going to get to that. Um, so here, it says here, Jason entertained them. Now this, I want, that word is an amazing word in the Greek. And here it's, the word, the root of the word is dekomai. And here it's got a prefix intensive. Hupo dekomai, which intensifies it. Used only four times in the New Testament, this particular word, entertain. But decomai is used many more times than that. Three times in Luke, Acts, and once in James. Now let's look, besides this one in Luke, Acts, there's two more. So if, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 10, 38. Luke 10, 38. I have a whole pile of data here, but, there, you know, I don't have time to dig around and Somewhere I got Luke ten thirty eight all laid out in the Greek here, but oh, here it is. There's the Greek. I have it. Okay, what's it say? I'll just read it. Luke ten thirty eight. Now, as they were traveling along, talking about Jesus and his entourage, they entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Luke ten thirty eight. And that's that hupodecomai. Now, what is decomai? There's other words for receive that could be somewhat synonymous. Sometimes they are. Receive, I think it's lombano, but it's bring to take to yourself. But the word decomai has more of a strong personal connotation. 
when you really welcome somebody, you're taking them into your home as someone who's an honored guest, and you're so glad to have them. Okay? You're treating them with honor and respect. So, in Luke X, now I did a, I've gotten better and better at being able to search my logo software and get stuff that really helps me. And I could narrow down the search. And so I found all the time decomize used with, with and without prefixes and then searched out uses in Luke X. Luke X uses it more frequently than any other part of the New Testament. And so in Luke X, remember Luke wrote both Luke and X, two-volume work. Luke uses decomai plus versions with prefixes for intensive purposes, anodecomai, hupodecomai, and so so forth, in a very important way. And in Luke X, who you decomai welcome is a very clear uh, uh, revealing thing. It's a it reveals your heart. It reveals what's important to you. The people who won't listen to God are going to reject Jesus. Those who are open to God's purposes receive Jesus. They welcome him. Okay? Now, this isn't the Mamby Pamby gospel Jesus is knocking on your door. He's stuck out in the cold. Will you let him in? Okay. Because that's, you know, you've heard that one. Knock, knock, knock. There's no doorknob. Poor Jesus. He needs you. No, we're not saying poor Jesus needs you. He's the creator of the universe. This isn't about that. It's about revealing hearts and showing God's purposes of salvation. Now, in that context, in Luke, from Luke 9.51 all the way to the crucifixion of the Lord, all the way there, Luke is very unique. The journey to Jerusalem is how Luke lays out the gospel. And from Luke 9.51 to way toward the end of Luke, the Bible makes clear Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, to be rejected. He's going to be rejected in Jerusalem. The king prophesied, who comes lowly, riding on a donkey, the one who's initially received with hosannas is going to be rejected in Jerusalem. That's in Luke Acts. But those who do welcome him are recipients of messianic salvation. It reveals hearts. The hearts of many will be revealed. This is all in the beginning of Luke. The prophecy of Zechariah and others. The hearts of many will be revealed. Remember that prophecy? I love Luke X. I've been preaching it for now decades. Uh, it's amazing. So Martha, welcoming Jesus, 
may not seem like a big deal, but it really is. Because that means she is on the outs with almost everybody else. And she's actually, by God's grace, receiving God's purposes. Because Jesus is going to be rejected in Jerusalem, but she welcomes him. Isn't that amazing? Who you show hospitality to reveals something about yourself. Now, Kenneth Bailey has written some great books on this matter. I'm rereading one from, uh, called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. His work on the prodigal son is probably one of the best out there. And it shows the heart of God that he would welcome back a son who had dishonored him before the village. According to Bailey, no one would ever do that. You shame your father, you're dead. You destroy the inheritance of your own family. You are a wicked, shameful, horrible person, never to be received again. That the father was willing to suffer shame, to run out through the village, and just, again, it's just amazing if you understand what's going on. It shows the heart of God. So Martha welcomed Jesus. No big deal when we read Luke, but we really get Luke Acts. It's a really big deal. They drag these guys out and beat them because they welcome gospel preachers. It's all about who you welcome and who you reject. So that's where you get decomai. And uh, let's look, let me see what else I have here. Luke 19 and verse 6. Someone would look that up and look at the context. I didn't print it in my notes. Whoever finds Luke 19.6, where, where the word on decomai is, is found as well. Let me see if I can find it in here. Oh, that's hupodecomai. Luke 19.6, who was it that received Jesus? Zacchaeus. Nice little, wee little man. Is that it? <laughs> We remember the children's song if we don't remember anything else. But Zacchaeus had no social standing in the village. But he welcomed Jesus. And so uh, Luke reserved the hupo prefix on decomai, possibly just to expand the vocabulary, but it is an intensive but for Martha and Zacchaeus and Jason, it's used for them. The only other time it's used is in James 2.25, where it says this, James 2.25. Again, it's outside of Luke X, but it's where this word for welcome with the intensive is used. And likewise, was not Rahab, the prostitute, also justified by works, when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out a different route. Rahab welcomed the messengers. Gladly received them because she protected the Jews. Hallelujah. Did I give me time to look this up here? Don't we also see that, Bob, in... Uh Sodom and Gomorrah with the uh, 
when the angels uh, came. Oh, the whole then, city rejected yeah, them. Right, and then Lot. Uh, right. Kind of, and, then, and then we also hear in the uh, New Testament entertaining spirits uh, unaware. Angels unaware. Correct. Right. So, who we welcome and who we reject reveals our character. Isn't that amazing? Yes, uh, Rich. I think you could apply that to where you attend church. If you sit underneath a pastor who preaches the gospel, well, that's, that's great. But if, if you don't, you're in trouble. I was sitting underneath a I took my two girls to a church where the pastor from the pulpit would undermine the scriptures, undermine the doctrines of the scriptures in favor of this Rick Warren-esque purpose-driven church to gain the masses and lose the gospel. Yeah. So you're welcome, Pop. You welcome the popularity of saying something that offends no one, or you welcome the gospel. That's a good point. Uh, the gospel offends too many people to ever be popular with the masses. Why does the gospel offend people? <laughs> Rich again, he's excited about that question. I'm excited. Yeah, I see that. How can you not be excited about the gospel? But I, I think that's the point. Why the gospel offends so deeply is, is John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People murder Christians all over the world because they expose sin. They expose their, their wickedness their inability, and we are hated for it. Don't think for a moment that you're going to attract anybody because of the gospel. They're going to hate you if you give them the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit, if they're to be saved, will take over and will save them. Right. Well, good point. And that's what Luke Acts is telling us. Because let, me, let me put this in a bigger perspective. Now, these, this guy entertained, he welcomed somebody, Jason, he, he welcomed Paul. But let's go back to Paul. In Acts 7, and then in Acts 9. What about Saul of Tarsus? Did he welcome Stephen's preaching? Oh, no. He became so irate... He was breathing out threats of slaughter against all Christians. He would have been like the ones that dragged this Jason out. It says in Acts, at the end of Stephen's speech, when he was martyred, that Paul was agreeing with them. And then, fast forward to Acts 9, at Paul's conversion, he comes face to face with the risen Christ who appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul thought he was just persecuting Christians. He's persecuting Christ. And he was converted. So just because somebody initially rejects doesn't mean they won't yet be converted. Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, is proof of that. Does that make sense? So then there are many other instances. Let me just give you a few if you want to jot down the references. Paradecomize, another way 
to intensify the idea. It's found in Acts 15.4. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders who reported what God had done. And when they were accused of doing evil in Acts 16, and they said they were, somebody said they were promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to welcome, paradecomai. Acts 22.18, they saw him telling me, hurry, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not welcome your testimony about me. When Paul had to run from Jerusalem, when he was rejected, not only by unconverted Jews, but Christians who had become Judaizers. It was Christians who started the riot in Jerusalem. James warned Paul when he got there, there's a lot of people here that, that are really angry with you. And they, they want you. They want, they're against you. And Paul, no matter what he did, couldn't stop them. So there's that. So I, I have a list of these here. Luke 2. Um, Luke 9. Well, there's many more. We'll get to more. I need to make a little progress. All right, here is... They dragged Jason and certain brothers before the politarchs. And it says... Uh, in my, the caption I have with this, or the notes, the politarchs would most likely have met either in the Forum or the Odeon of Thessalonica. Since the Odeon is so close to the Forum here, it seems possible as the location for the chapter. So here is an excavation with the Forum, it says, and up there is the Odeon. And this is likely where this happened. And the reason I show you these, besides the fact I spent a bunch of money to get them, <laughs> and I want to do something with them, uh, is the fact that it proves that the Bible isn't mythology. It's not the Book of Mormon. These things happen in real places, and those places are discovered through archaeology. Now, this is not a super... Uh, important thing, but it does say Jason on here. The seal impression on this broken jar handle reads, belonging to Jason. Probably not the same Jason, but it showed it was a popular name. Okay? It wasn't something out of science fiction. Now let's go to Acts 17, 7b and 8. And here's a further accusation against those preachers, Paul and Silas. And Jason, who welcomed them, says here, and they act, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another King Jesus. Oh, sedition. Now, this is very important also in Luke Acts. Don't ever forget, and I, I've gone over this many times, in Acts 1, they asked whether now is the time that Jesus would restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, 
are you going to overthrow Rome and kick them out of Jerusalem and set up the kingdom? And Jesus' answer to them, this Acts 1-7, I think, was in 8, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. So they weren't any threat to Rome. They were witnesses. The king to whom they were witnessing, or about whom they were witnessing, I should say, is ruling in heaven. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110. One, I think I got that right. So what's that tell us? Just, that psalm is quoted, Psalm 110, more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage. Why is it so important? Here's why. Jesus is in heaven ruling at the right hand of God. He's receiving citizens whenever somebody's converted and worships him as the Lord and the King. The time for overthrowing Rome is not now. Because right after Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll be my witnesses, he ascended up into heaven. So Jesus is reigning in heaven and receiving followers when they're converted, when people are converted, isn't a threat to Rome. Rome is part of God's providence at that time. Pax Romana is part of why the gospel could go all over the known world, as the Great Commission called it to be sent out. So it wasn't an issue. But the enemies of the gospel wanted to claim, and here do claim, that the Christians are seditionists who want to overthrow Rome. And that's a lie. It's not true. They say there is another King Jesus. Well, that's sneaky. Isn't that? People do that today in the political realm. They say things that are sort of true, but telling a lie in a bigger sense. Yeah, the Christians do say there's a King Jesus. But they're not saying that he's a threat to Caesar. He's already ascended into heaven. And he won't come back until some fixed future time, and we don't know when that is. Do you see what's going on? They're twisting it around to make it look bad. Okay, there's another king, Jesus, and they stirred up the crowd, stirred up. And there's an interesting word for that. So, who is Caesar? Caesar, in the Greek here, is Kaiser. Do, do you, some of you were here when, at Sunday school when I had that coin that I own. I put it up here and it showed the Third Reich, bundle of fascism, what fascism was, Mussolini, the Third Reich. Well, Kaiser was the title that an earlier German ruler took, Kaiser Wilhelm. The reason for Kaiser is to remind everyone of the Roman Empire. And, I, and in that lecture, when I showed you the coin, 
I pointed out that they thought the first strike had already happened, and they had some interesting timing of it. The second Reich was supposed to be Kaiser Wilhelm was going to be the emperor over a millennium. But that didn't happen because World War I was the end of that. But then Hitler and Mussolini were going to do the Third Reich. Never mind that the second one already failed and didn't last a thousand years. But Kaiser Wilhelm is an allusion to wanting to create a millennium. Now we have in America, for the last, I don't know how, really, for most of our history, Christians who want to create a millennium. Literally. In fact, I would say, as far as America is concerned, our national heresy is post-millennialism. We're going to have a Christian empire headquartered in America with Christ still in heaven, and we're going to make everybody Christian. And that is very well documented, but that's also a heresy. There's no millennium until the king is actually ruling on earth in Jerusalem. If Jesus isn't reigning in Jerusalem bodily, there's no millennium going on. Now, isn't that simple? You would think everybody would know that. You would think Acts 1-7 and what happened right after that with the ascension in Psalm 110-1 would make it so clear that everybody, every Christian would know it for sure. But they don't. I have spent decades debating against people who think they're going to create the millennium. The new apostolic reformation. There are reformed people like uh, Gary North. I wrote a, a letter to him and got a dismissive response. So I ended up writing an article when I was in seminary about this idea that you're going to force everybody to obey the Christian church whether they want to or not and somehow create a millennium. Now these post-millennialists think they have 50,000 years of needed to get their millennium in place. But they can't even create anything that lasts more than two or three generations now. And apostasy happens. No, Christ is reigning from heaven. So Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm was a false Christ, false Caesar, and he was defeated. Dr. Schnabel says the term emperor, literally Caesar, Kaiser, was originally the cognomen of the gens Iulia, one of the old Roman families. It was linked to Julius Caesar, the general and politician who brought the Roman Republic to an end and established the Roman Empire. When he adopted Octavian, designated him as a successor in his last will. The Roman Senate recognized Octavian as Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, later given the title Augustus. Thus the name Caesar was used as Schnabel as the title for subsequent Roman emperors. At the time, the emperor was Tiberius Claudius, who ruled from A.D. 41 to 54. 
his main, his main claim to fame was the conquest of Britain in AD 43. So there's a little history. Caesar was a title of the emperor. And so Germany in the late 19th century claimed Kaiser as a title that they were going to take because they were going to create a millennium. Um, all right, let's all turn together to Luke 23, 1 through 5. Luke 23, 1 through 5. I know I'm going, oh yes, uh, Paul. There's a need for a mic. I like to go into depth, so bear with me. While they're turning to this, maybe this is a good time to just ask this. The uh, statement up there, they falsely accused Christians of creating political upheaval against Rome. Would it be um, wrong to say that they, the mob mentality, uh, but they accurately accused Christians of creating uh, upheaval against the then Babel or Rome? And uh, is it our place as Christians to work on the political plane? I think it's not, but on the other hand, Bonhoeffer thought it was. Uh, okay. Bonhoeffer resisted Hitler and protested. He, he could have just stayed in America. He was here and then went back. He was protesting the fact, amongst other things, I have a big thick book about him, um, that the Lutheran state church was endorsing Hitler. And there was horrific murder of the Jews going on. And so I think it's right to admire a Bonhoeffer like anybody else who risked their lives to stand against that horrific murder and, and the atrocious, atrocious things that Hitler was doing. And furthermore, it's right to rebuke the church for endorsing evil, which was going on. And I think it's right for us, because of what we know to be true about God's moral law, to stand up for the rights of the unborn babies who are being murdered. That's not trying to establish a kingdom. It's trying to save lives. Does that make sense? We don't want to rule over somebody. We don't want to see the Jews hated and killed and unborn babies hated and killed and all these sort of things. So I wouldn't want to... I'm not going to speak against Bonhoeffer because he was in a situation where he took action when others weren't willing to. But to say that Hitler's wrong and evil isn't the same as trying to establish your own version of the kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's how I would answer that. Does anybody else have a... Want to say something? Well, have you found Luke 23 yet? You're fast. Okay, Luke 23, 1 through 5. 
And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And when they began to accuse him, saying, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So this idea that Christians believed that Jesus Christ was a king is prominent in Luke Acts. But we've got to read the whole story to see in what sense he is. Verse 3, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Question mark. Unquote. And he answered him, You have said so. Is that an interesting answer? You said it. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. In other words, Pilate really didn't think that Jesus was a threat to the sovereignty of Rome in that part of the world. He said, I didn't find any guilt there. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. They just wanted to be rid of him because of their hatred for the fact that he was who he was, the Messiah. And he wasn't going along with their political agenda. The Sadducees and the rulers had made a good deal with Rome. It was working for them. They weren't interested. They rejected Jesus. Now let's look at, if, while you're in that chapter, Luke 23, 36 or 38. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Now notice how in Luke X, this theme comes up. This is a way to discredit the claims of Christ and the faith of the gospel by claiming that Jesus was the king of the Jews in the sense of an earthly king to raise up an army and cause an insurrection. And that gave them ground to mock him because then, well, yeah, what kind of king with the kind of miraculous power they say he has sits here and allows himself to hang on a cross, to be tortured, to be hated, to be mocked, to be crucified. And if you have these powers, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself now. Then we'll really know you're a king. In other words, we'll only accept you on our terms. What kind of king is a crucified Jewish Messiah? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There you hang. What kind of king is this? Save yourself. But he was intent all the way from Luke 10, 51 on to go to Jerusalem to be 
rejected and lamented over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who stones those who are sent to you. How often I wish to gather you together, but you wouldn't have it. You don't recognize the day of your visitation. They didn't recognize that a humble servant riding a donkey could be the Jewish Messiah. So both the Jews and Gentiles were rejecting Jesus because he wouldn't be a king who defeated Rome. The Rome because they mocked him and thought he couldn't do anything to us anyhow. And the Jews because they wanted a king to defeat Rome. And that's not what he came to do. And so there, there you have it. Also, turn to Luke 20. 20 through 25. And I think you might be surprised how often this comes up in Luke Acts. The interaction between first Jesus and his apostles and the Roman authorities and then the Jewish leadership and also then in Acts between the apostles and the Roman authorities and the Jewish leadership goes on all the way through Luke Acts. It's a key theme and you need to understand it. So, Luke 20, 20 through 25. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness inscription does it have? They answered, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. Unbelievable. Amazing. Ingenious. Go ahead and give Caesar his coins, his images on him anyhow. But who actually bears the image of God? Human beings. So go ahead and pay your taxes, but are you going to give yourself to God to serve him according to his terms? Well, they didn't dare ask him any more questions. (laughs) They didn't want to do either one. They didn't want to pay taxes, and they didn't want to give themselves to God either because they weren't right with God. Now, how does Christ, I've got a few minutes here, intersect with human history as recorded and known from other sources besides the Bible. And so here's from an online source. I I looked this up. There's a brief mention of Christ in the fifth volume of Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars, written around 120 AD. Suetonius tells us 
the Roman Emperor Claudius, which would bring us to the time of Paul in Thessalonica, that's me saying that, back to this source, expelled the Jews from Rome because the Jews in, at Rome caused continuous disturbances as the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. Life of Claudius, page 25. Another translation reads, because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus, which would be a Latinized version of Christ. Another trans, uh, Crestus. And another, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. The idea of law and order loomed large in the Roman mind, especially to the upper classes. And the basic criticism is that Christians caused a disturbance of the peace. So uh, the problem was they thought they were creating an instigation against Rome, but they weren't. And that's why it's so important when you read Luke Acts to read the addresses. One of the ways Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, shows God's purpose is through addresses given by key people. Sometimes Luke says, and the Holy Spirit came upon Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary. You go on. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and he preaches. And so key people, Stephen or Paul before Rome, the addresses, the author intent. How does Luke let us know? Because if a key person, sometimes he just tells us, it was through the Holy Spirit. Other times it's implied. But how do we know who to listen to? Somebody who is portrayed by Luke to be a valid witness speaks and we learn about God's purposes. So read the addresses of Paul called before authorities and you learn something. Now, the, what we learn is that there's no desire to overthrow the Roman system, but to be witnesses just as Jesus called them to be. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the world. Does that make sense? But their critics said, no, they're trying to overthrow Caesar and cause disturbances. Wasn't true. Now, a little update on history. Now we're done with this slide. Remind me, I start on verse 9 next time. And then we'll go to the Bereans next week. Uh, here's a little update. Jesus also, in Luke, or in Luke, predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, who rejects the prophets, didn't recognize the time of her visitation, it's predicted that not one stone will be left on another. That was by Jesus himself. Rather than setting up a kingdom and ruling from Jerusalem, he predicted its destruction. That destruction happened in 70 AD. It was never mentioned as having happened in the Gospels or Acts, or really in anywhere else. 
And so it's pretty good reason to believe that most of the New Testament was written before 70 AD, especially Hebrews and the Gospels in Luke and in Acts. But it actually happened. But it didn't happen because of Christians. It happened because of a revolt that was instigated by some Jewish nationalists. Not because of Christians in 70 AD. And then another one happened in 135 AD that was even more devastating. That left the Jews without a presence to speak of, a strong presence, until 1948. So that's our history. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. And Lord, we pray that you would bless Eric as he teaches us important things for us to learn and know. And may we welcome the truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.